Revelation 15, verses 1 to 8. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Did you see the cool way Toby juggled his avocado there? That was throwing it up and down to get the rhythm. I thought that was pretty nifty. Okay, well let's uh, come and think carefully about this interesting passage in Revelation. Let's pray before we begin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time now. We pray that you would help us to understand a message here from yourself as we read Revelation 15 and 16. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to um, benefit as we think about our lives in your world, uh, as we live before you as your people. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've heard it said that the mining tax has been introduced now so that a broader number of Australian people can experience the benefits of the sale of things like iron ore and other minerals, while we've still got them. In short, one day our mines will run out of ore to mine, and so we better tax the mining companies now while we've still got a chance to make something from them. Well, I think comments like that and the logic seems to grow out of the idea that things don't last forever. It'd be interesting to think about Australia, wouldn't it, in, if we cast our minds ahead and think about what Australia would be like 200 years from now, maybe 400 or even another 2,000 years from now as we live. I wonder if we'll have run out of ore by then. Perhaps we'll have run out of fish in the oceans and forests, maybe even water in a, water aquifers under the ground. It's hard to imagine uh, what the world could be like but will civilization continue to roll on? Can we expect that to happen? Well, today's passage, it starts to deal with these kinds of end-game phenomena. 
Is the end of the world going to be simply about running out of resources? Or does it have a, a bigger link with what God's intentions for his creation involve? Well, let's ha- take a look now at this picture of a journey towards the end. In today's passage, we encounter, encounter another series of seven episodes that seem to be bound up with the destiny of the world. As we've worked through uh, the book of Revelation, we've noticed the structures centred on a series of visions. The first vision started out being a vision of the Son of Man, Jesus, at the centre of a series of lampstands, which were the churches. And from that vision, we know there arose some letters to the seven churches. The next vision began in chapters 4 through to 20. And it relates to the challenging state that people face this side of the new Jerusalem coming. The sermons that we've looked at in this series have focused on that section from 4 to 20, seeing this is the time between the resurrection of Jesus, his first resurrection, and the time when he comes again, when the new heavens and the new earth come. Now, there's different ways to uh, interpret Revelation and different scholars and authors will um, have a, a different handle on how they understand it. But the way that I've understood it is that we're not so much looking at consecutive events uh, end on end, as you could string them along the line and figure out which is you know, the World War II and other events in history to particular battles, but more facets of a different... Uh, of the same stage or age uh, or different aspects of it that seem to have overlaps. But central to this view is that in this time between when Jesus is risen and when the new earth comes, Jesus is still the one who has conquered. He has triumphed. He's described as the one who was slain and ransomed people for God from every nation, even as we saw the DVD with the Hansons, even people from China all over the world, and they will reign with him. And yet as we've worked through Revelation, we've seen that not everybody, not every nation state, not every person, and certainly not the devil, submits to the Lord Jesus. So while the cross was the big turning point in the battle, uh, there's still resistance until the end. And the character of this age falls far short of that wonderful age to come with the new heavens and the new earth. And this age has been made clear of what it's like from the series of episodes of seven, where in chapter six and seven we saw seals showing tyranny over the world. Chapters eight to 11 we see seven trumpets, perhaps a warning, which indicated chaos. And then In chapters 12 to 14, seven signs showing persecution. But as today we come to the final series of seven episodes, we see that there are seven plagues introduced and they show complete destruction. Let's pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. There seems to be a difference between 
this series of seven and what's come before, in the episode of the trumpets, we could see that there was a partial destruction breaking out on the earth. And perhaps that was a, a type of warning of what's coming. But in this vision of the plagues, there's a sense that the end has in fact come. This is a end time judgment and destruction. And it represents the winding down of earth as we know it and the end of human history prior to the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. But before this period of judgment poured out, there seems to be the impression given that God's people are actually not going to be part of that judgment, that they're in fact spared, which we get a picture of in chapter 15, verse 2 through to 4. Here we picture the triumph of God's people. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who'd been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your acts, righteous acts have been revealed. We see a sea of glass mixed with fire, and it perhaps casts us back to the time of the Exodus, where God's people experience injustice at the hand of uh, someone who would take the place of God, which was Pharaoh. And God heard the cries of his people and acted. He acted to rescue them with mighty acts of judgment, the plagues that were poured out, and by their deliverance by means of passing through the sea which became a form of judgment upon God's enemies. So we're casting our mind back to a picture of victory for God's people at the Exodus. After Moses and the people had walked through the sea, they got to the other side and were very joyful for their rescue and sang praises to God and thanks for their deliverance. And here John speaks about another group of people also who are faithful to God. They're the ones who've been victorious and triumphed over the beast and his image and the number of his name. It seems that these people are God's faithful people and they've chosen not to serve the beast, which is some subhuman authority that pretends to be God, takes the place of God. These people haven't submitted to that. And they're excited and they sing and they play their harps to God, but not to anybody else. The reason why they're celebrating is because it's bound up with their knowledge that God is their king, the one whom all kinds of nations will be drawn to because of his character his, and his righteous acts which have been revealed. What are God's righteous acts? Well, I suppose they could be understood in a, in a couple of ways. Righteousness is about fidelity and faithfulness and also justice. And so we can understand that God's righteous acts are his, his decision to redeem and rescue his people through the work of Jesus. And his righteous acts also could be a reference to the fact that he's not going to let evil go unchecked, that he's going to judge a world for its rebellion against him. 
In any case, the nations see something of the goodness of God in his justice. And they worship him because he's holy and they're confident of his righteous acts. And we can understand that, can't we? We can understand people wanting to put their trust in justice, a just God, a holy God. Justice is a good thing. It tastes pretty good, I can tell you now. We've um, experienced a bit of justice this year. I had an opportunity to visit the courts semi-recently. I had a building that was broken into and a character, colourful character who broke into it, smashed a window and told the judge a story about how someone else might have done the job. And, but the witness next door told a different story and so did the police and the judge heard and came down, down on the side of the police and the witness. And the resu net result of that was hopefully I don't have to pay for a window that was smashed. And justice feels good. And the nations seem to appreciate something of that. They are looking forward to worshipping this just and true God who's not going to let evil continue unchecked. But how are we in our approach to God? Are we still grateful for God and his faithfulness to us in giving us salvation that we enjoy? Do we maintain a sense of our unholiness and a, and a real joy that we've been forgiven? Or... Are we a bit accustomed to God's grace? That, In some ways, as we think about God and his kindness to us, we think it's a bit cheap. Well, God's word reminds us today that God has been indeed just and true. In spite of our unrighteousness, he's been righteous and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We're confident of God's goodness to us and his faithfulness and also his justice as a judge who doesn't let wickedness go unchecked. His grace isn't cheap. Uh, we're told that he redeems us not with silver or gold but with the precious blood of his son. It's a costly grace. Jesus was the lamb who was slain for us and we're encouraged to be people who hold on to that. And so I take it that this is a picture given which shows that God's people are spared. They're ready to walk into, in the past, we saw Israelites ready to walk into the promised land and here seems to be a picture of God's people ready to enter the new heavens and the new earth. But for the rest of the world there is a final judgment, it seems, at the end and it's a frightening sight that we're picking up in chapters 5 through to 8. I can find it on my sheet. After this, I looked out in the heaven, in heaven, the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So this is a frightening image of a judgment that's about to be poured out before people can enter God's presence. Well, let's take a scan over these first six bowls uh, in chapter 16 and I'm going to summarise briefly some of what happens in them and then we'll look at what can be said 
or understood about this scene. In chapter 16, verse 1, there's a loud voice from the temple, and surely it's the voice of God saying, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And the first bowl is poured out in verse 2. It's poured onto the land, and it turns out to be a plague of sores and ulcers on those who had the mark of the beast, who worshipped his image. John could be talking about people who worshipped someone who took the place of God. Perhaps uh, emperor worship was an example of this. Those, those who devoted themselves to someone other than God. Judgments taking place. A kind of a judgment upon their idolatry. The second bowl comes in verse 3. It's poured into the sea and the sea turns into blood. Everything in it dies. I was interested to note recently we saw laws changed in Parliament to prevent a super trawler catching too many fish off Australian shores. The idea is that their technology is so great they can find anything that moves in the ocean. They've got massive freezers, which means they can pack a lot of stuff in there, and they've got huge nets, they can catch anything that's in their wake. And the problem is if we get too many of these sorts of things happening, uh, people have asked the question, will there be an ocean with fish in it to catch? Well, there might be an ocean, but the question is, is there anything to catch in the ocean? Well, here in this picture of judgment, things are dreadful and the sea looks empty because everything's dead. The third bowl comes in verse 4 and again it's got to do with water. Rivers and springs this time and there's a comment made about people who've shed the blood of God's people in verse 6. I'll pick it up in verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, you who were and are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And so, again, we're given the impression that there's judgment that's taking place, but it's not necessarily on God's people at this point. The fourth bowl comes in verse 8 is poured out onto the sun and results. the result is that people are scorched. The fifth bowl in verse 10 is poured out on the throne of the beast. His kingdom's plunged into darkness. And we take it that this kingdom of the beast is a, a government rule which is opposed to God and might try to take God's place. And the fact that it's plunged into darkness, we might be given the impression that God's presence is withdrawn from it. And the sixth bowl takes place in verse 12 with the drying up of the Euphrates River and leading to a, a situation where the kings of the east and the hordes can potentially come in and take their stand at God, towards God at Mount Megiddo or, as we read it in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now, as I was reading these verses the first time around and trying to get a handle on this, I was thinking, gee... I'm getting out of here. I need to avoid this. <laughs> no, it's, a bit, it's a bit tricky to get a handle on. But what can be said about these bowls of wrath poured out on the earth, these plagues that are poured out? What can we take away from this part of the Bible? How are we to understand it? Well, there are some things we can draw. In the first place, we've got reminders of Egypt and God's deliverance of his people there. They're brought to mind in this section. 
God's people have passed through some trials of life in chapter 15, verse 2 to 4. We see that these people have been victorious. They've been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name. And in the same way that the Israelites have been rescued by means of plagues in the past, we're given the picture that there's a parallelism, parallelism here where God's people are avoiding the trauma of the plagues that are being dished out, so to speak, and they aren't experiencing the judgment, but instead they're on the verge of entering into, uh, I guess, a place of rescue, God's new heavens and new earth, having passed through the Red Sea. They stand beside a sea of glass mixed with fire. Perhaps this is a reference to divine judgment. And they're ready to enter the new heavens and new earth. So that's the first thing. We can see there's reminders of a picture of rescue from Egypt that's being applied to this end time. The second thing we can see in the episode of the bowls is that God's justice is applied to his people. These bowls are actually linked earlier back in Revelation to the prayers of the saints. Uh, If we have a look back at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we read about these seals being opened. Jesus is worthy to open the seals, which seems to be the destiny of the world. And in verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So these martyrs. Verse 10, They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were killed or were to be killed as they had been was completed. So these martyrs have got this bowl in 5 verse 8 is the... The incense in the bowls, the prayers of the saints, and they're under the altar, praying to God, saying, How long till you avenge our blood? Well, by the time we get to chapter 16, we get a response to those who kill God's people. Verse 5, we're told, Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets. There seems to be a judgment on these people who have shed the blood of God's people. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then we get this reference to possibly the voice of the martyrs underneath the altar, because the altar is brought to our attention in verse 7. And I heard the altar respond. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so we're given the impression that God doesn't forget the suffering of his people. There is justice that does come, and he's, he's one who brings it. That's the second thing we can take away from this passage. God is bringing justice. Thirdly, we notice that although God's brought, I suppose, trouble on the world to give people a wake-up call to turn back to him the problem is they harden their hearts we see this in verses 9 and 11 so if you 
following on with me, I'll read out verse 9. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. In verse 11, and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. The plagues provide a stimulus or a wake-up call for people to turn back to God. Certainly we've had that with the trumpets, a warning. Uh, but we're given the impression that people don't take these things seriously and instead they harden their hearts against God, they're cranky with God, they're angry with him and they curse him. They don't necessarily repent. Fourthly, we can see that the message of the Bible is, is fairly consistent about how the end game's going to shape up. The kings of the earth take their stand against God. We've already learned that as we've read Psalm 2 in the past. But here there's a picture of a, a final battle that's spoken of as people assemble at Armageddon, Mount Megiddo, uh, the place that's been uh, the venue for over 200 battles, some famous battles. When I was studying in ancient history, we came across Tutmose III who lived hundreds of years before Christ and he fought a battle at Megiddo. Uh, likewise, King Josiah, he died there. And here we give the impression that there's a, a final battle but it's not much of a battle, actually. God wins pretty well. In Psalm 2, when we read about the end game of the world, we find out that kings and nations set themselves against God and against his king, but God laughs at them from heaven. He thinks it's so ridiculous that people are going to take God on. He speaks about his king as the one who will rule the nations with an iron rod, in verse 9 in chapter Psalm 2. In Psalm 2. By the time we come to this part of the, the wrap-up, if you like, of the world in Revelation, uh, we read a little later in chapter 19, verse 15, that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. And a quote, he will rule them with an iron scepter. So despite the fact that people shake their fist at God and take a stand against him, we're given the impression that it's not much of a competition. God is going to win. He's already triumphed with Christ. And like the Battle of the Coral Sea was a turning point in the war, where the enemy knew they weren't going to win, that is the turning point, the cross. Uh, and the pockets of resistance will still be met with God's, God's judgment. God wins the battle. People can't stand up against him. Well, that brings us to the seventh bowl and the completion of God's judgment. So we'll pick that up in verse 17 if you're reading on with me. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. I'll read 18 to 21. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon's always been opposed to God or represents 
rebellious humanity. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men. Again, we cast back to the, the plagues of Egypt where there was hail as well. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. At this point, we're given the words from the temple saying, it's done. It seems that the, there's been a judgment that's taken place. And humanity has found its limits for how long it can rebel against God and the world as we know it's wrapped up. And so these, these plagues reveal a time when there is judgment, the end judgment, complete destruction. The world has been groaning, we're told, in other parts of the Bible, and there is a judgment at the end, but there's also hope. At the start of the sermon I mentioned a few questions about what the world will look like in the future. If we think, project forward hundreds of years, perhaps even 2,000 years, will civilization continue to roll on? Well, it's not necessarily because we'll run out of things like iron ore and minerals uh, that I don't... Well, we don't know how long it will run on, but we're told there's not going to be an end because we're running out of resources. There's going to be an end to it because God is going to bring an end to it. He's going to bring a judgment upon evil and he's going to bring his people to live in a new heavens and a new earth. And there's a challenge for us in the midst of all this. We see it in chapter 16, verse 15. In the middle of all this, John writes, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. We're reminded to be people who are ready for the Lord, not to be caught napping or even worse. Here the challenge is to appreciate that the world does groan and in spite of wickedness and the resistance against people submitting to Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and doing damage to God's people, God's still in control over this trouble and he's bringing a day when there is an end to it, an end to evil, and he's bringing a time of justice where his people will be vindicated. And our challenge is to recognise that God is in control over all things and to be people who remain awake, who remain faithful to the Lord and know that now's the time to look forward to that salvation and to inherit it. So let us be people who continue to remain faithful to the Lord uh, and be those who do enter into that new time at the end, the new heavens and the new earth when the Jerusalem depend, descends and we live with the Lord forever. May God help us to be those faithful people. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, even as we read this passage today, we can see something of your justice to judge wickedness and redeem your people. Lord, we thank you that uh, we'll be spared your wrath in the, in the final judgment because Jesus uh, was the lamb who was slain, who redeems us from our rebellion against you. Lord, we thank you that uh, we stand uh, looking forward to a time when we will live in your presence forever. And Lord, we pray that in spite of the, uh, the rebellion against you between now and the end, you will help us to be your faithful people who stay awake, who seek to live godly lives which 
bring honour to you. And keep in the right perspective Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and live for him. Lord, we pray this week that you'd help us to remain faithful to you. Lord, we also pray that you would help us even this, in this time now while you're still providing scope for people to turn back to you. Lord, we pray for the conversations that we'll have with those who don't know you and that we can remind them of what you've done to bring salvation uh, in and through Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Lord, help us to be excited by this message and to uh, again see that there is time for people to get right with you as we share it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to persevere and we pray that you would help us to be engaged in your mission. Lord, thank you for this day and for this passage now. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.